and welcome to the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Of course, as soon as I turn on the microphone, my cat Leah walks in, but it's kind of appropriate that Leah walks in because Derek Barris, my next guest for today's show, similarly to me, is a huge fan of cats. So actually, what was interesting about Derek is that I asked him on because there's a lot that I have in common with him, and I, I'm, I was interested in talking to him because, similarly to me, he's fascinated in a lot of different aspects uh, of life. And I, you know, he's a DJ, or he was a DJ. He's not DJing as much now, but he teaches yoga. He's a writer, a columnist for the Big Think. Uh, he's also the music specialist for Twenty Four Hour Fitness. He has been featured in the New York Times, the LA Times, Vogue, Shape, NPR. He created Flow Play at Equinox Fitness, which is sort of this music program that fuses music and yoga and neuroscience. He also, his classes can be found online at Yogi's Anonymous. I don't know. I just, I'm interested by people that have their hands and their minds sort of enraptured and captured by a lot of different aspects of life. And that to me is exciting. You know, I, I'm, I'm writing a book right now. I teach yoga. I created this podcast where I sort of, I became interested by social media, not in the sense that a lot of people are fascinated by it, in the sense that people just want to talk about themselves all day. I became fascinated by the sort of neuro, neurological and the social and the systemic impact of a platform where people seem to spend most of their time staring at Instagram all day. I do think there's sort of a big impact with, with social media on our lives, and I don't think it's very good. And I think one of the things that's being impacted is the way that we communicate. I don't think we talk much anymore. We don't look at people in the eye. We send DMs. We don't really communicate. We don't have conversations like we used to. So I felt Derek would be a really interesting guy to have on the show. And I actually met Derek maybe like 10 years ago. He was DJing a yoga class that I took in Santa Monica at the old Santa Monica Power Yoga Studio, the donation-based studio on 2nd Street. I was taking a class from Michelle Goldstein, who was teaching there. And I remember him DJing that class and because the music was incredible. I specifically remember, it almost felt like Michelle's class was just one long song. Uh, his latest book is called Whole Motion, which investigates why it's as important to train your brain as your body. So again, I just I, I was really intrigued by his thoughts on social media, the impact of cell phone use on our lives. So yeah, the conversation with Derek is going to be coming up really soon. I just wanted to talk about one other quick sort of thought of mine. By the way, Derek, you can find him online at DerekBarris.com. He teaches public yoga classes at Equinox in Westwood, Marina Del Rey, and in Culver City. And definitely you can find his books online at Amazon. You can read his articles. His latest one is actually about the owner of CVT Soft Serve Ice Cream, who I I had on a couple days ago, and that podcast should drop probably in about a week. You can you can read Derek Barris's latest article about Joe and CVT Soft Serve 
on the Big Think, that website. He also just wrote a really interesting article about Equinox. Uh, definitely check him out. I had one other thought that I was thinking about. Well, two things. First of all, there's a great article in the New York Times about Neil Young. And I just, I'm bringing that up because I have a love for music and I, I do think, so it's hard, sometimes it's hard for me to articulate the impact of technology. I think it's shrinking the brain. It's shrinking our potential, our brain's potential to receive information, to think about information. We want everything to be spoon-fed or we want it to be as fast as possible. And Neil really has been impacted. One of the things Neil is passionate about is the quality of music. I don't want to bore you too much, but the MP3s that you're listening to on Spotify or iTunes, the sound quality of those don't even come close to the sound quality of a record or a CD. Now, most people may not notice it. They're, they might not be audiophile geeks like Neil Young is or like I am or Derek Barris is. But the way that music is recorded, it's not captured through iTunes or Spotify like it used to be on an album or an LP. And that's something that Neil has become really passionate about. And it is sort of symbolic to the way our culture receives and absorbs information now. We don't really want to absorb the truest form, per se. We just want to get it as quickly as possible. So I highly suggest reading the article in the New York Times about Neil Young. The other point that I want to make, I'm in the midst of writing my book, my first book, it's uh, been about an 18-month process, and I finally finished this my most recent draft a couple days ago. Technically, it's the second draft. It's probably maybe the eighth or ninth draft that I sent it out to four friends of mine, and I'm going to get their feedback. So anyway, I printed it out and put it into sort of a, a binder, and I started reading it. And you know, I was pleasantly surprised at how good it was, but I was also noticing that I was reading it and it was reading differently than how it was being read in my mind on the computer. And that just sort of blew me away. And it, it made me sort of things started to stand out. Like I needed to fix this sentence or make it flow a little bit of make it flow a little better. And I don't think I would have picked up on that on the computer. I mean, of course I'm picking up things on the computer as I'm writing it, but to get a true sense of the book and where it is, and where it stands, and if it's ready to be looked at by publishers and editors, I'm getting a deeper sense of the quality of my own book by reading it on a piece of paper as opposed to reading it on the computer screen. It's a completely different experience. And I do think my brain, anybody's brain, reads information off of their phone or their computer screen or their tablet differently than reading it on the written page. Of course, there's an ease to writing on a computer. There is an ease to getting all the information that you possibly want on Spotify or on Google, but I don't think we're absorbing it or grasping it or holding on to the information or using our senses to their fullest capability as we would be if we were actually listening to a full record, reading a book, 
with the actual pages as opposed to on a tablet. It was just really interesting um, epiphany that I went through the last couple of days as I was sitting there reading my book and I realized I'm really proud of it, but it certainly needs another round. And I think I'm going to have to read it at least a couple times and make edits from the written page as opposed to making edits by staring at it on my computer screen. So that's it for now. That's today's intro to the show. I'm really excited Derek Barris took the time to talk with me this week. Again, you can find him at DerekBarris.com. He's obviously on Instagram where you'll probably see a bunch of cat photos. Uh, read his articles on The Big Think. Be sure to share the podcast with friends. You can message me on Instagram or Twitter. Any suggestions, any future guests, comments, you can find me on Instagram. Write a review on iTunes. As always, really thankful for you being a part of the show. You can visit my Patreon at patreon.com backslash Eddie Cohen if you want to support the show. But for now, as always, thank you so much to Derek for taking the time to talk to me, and thank you to you for being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. I just, I relate to you. Well, for, I met you years ago while you were DJing a yoga class. But I, I just, there's a lot of similarities in the sense that you're a writer, you're a DJ, you're really into music, you teach yoga. And I'm just curious, the first thing that I'm really curious about is I just read an article of yours where you talk about the importance of reading. And I also looked on your website and I get the sense you're writing a book about distractions. Is that true? I've written a few chapters and I may get back to it. I'm in an interesting point in my career where I have a lot going on. A company I co-founded is about to get funding. And the thing about writing a book is you have to devote, it's it's a full-time job. You have to devote so much time to it. So I've written a few chapters of that book. And then I'm also working on a memoir about my history with psychedelics. Okay. Which is a little easier to write because it's more personal and not as research dependent on the book called Anatomy of Distraction. So I'm just saving all of those things. So I'll write them. But right now where my life is, there's a lot of moving pieces. I work for five different companies. So I'll get to that book. But uh, it's not a, it's not a full uh, focus right now. Because <laughs> of about distraction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I am interested. You know, I talked to Jimmy a couple days ago. And I obviously, this is sort of the theme of the podcast. But or one of them at least, and I was just listening to a podcast on the way over here. You know, we live in this world now where we're in a constant state of distraction. And so when I saw that you were at least curious in writing about that, I'm sort of curious, what's your experience? Are you sort of noticed that your brain has shifted in your day-to-day life? Are you dealing with I think constant onslaught of distractions. And for me, I, I struggle with using Instagram because as an artist, I do feel like I want to share what I have going on with the world, but I don't want to get caught up in the rabbit hole of just sort of going down the rabbit hole of distractions. I don't struggle with the platforms themselves. I think they're great. They're, the utility of them is very important. Uh, they've changed our cultures in many important ways and tragic ways as well. 
When I was growing up, I had mentioned my father worked for the same company before we started recording for 42 years, and he worked in computer operation. So I'm very accustomed to computers. The thing is, back then, the computer was in the basement. Right. So most of the time, I was out playing sports. And having worked in media since 1993, my freshman year of college, I started writing for the school newspaper, and I never stopped writing. I've watched the shift. What really bothers me is when I was driving over here, I took the 10 and there was kind of a lineup and I drove by three cars weren't moving because three people were on their phones on the 10. I know. And there are 420,000 people that are injured or killed every year because of distracted driving. Nine, say that number again, 420,000 people a year around the world. Nine people in America are killed every day because of distracted driving. Those are completely um, uh, preventable. For the preventable. Thank yeah. you. Those were those are completely preventable deaths. Yeah, and it's all because of an addiction that, as a culture, we're not even close to willing to face. It took us a long time as a society to understand the dangers of cigarettes. We have the data right now as to the problems neurologically. We don't have the long term data, but I don't think we need it. On my personal podcast, I interviewed this woman two weeks ago, Maura O'Connor who wrote a book called Wayfinding, which is about how humans navigate their territory throughout mm-hmm. history. So she went up to the Inuit and she went to the uh, study the cultures in Australia, the Aborigines and the Dreamtime and how they map, they map their territory through music. And just all the amazing ways that we're able to map. And when she was doing her research about humans that use GPS to wayfind, to find their way all the time, are doing serious damage to their hippocampus. And so I personally believe we're going to see a huge onslaught in our generation and younger of diseases of dementia. We're already Mm. seeing the rates increase over the last generation. And I only think it's going to get worse. Well, doesn't this, you know, of course you said you love technology um, and we love the platforms. And again, they do bring connection. But I think for whatever reason, I mean, does this concern you? A lot of people think that I'm sort of crazy when I bring up a lot of things that you're talking about and sort of the systemic effect of Instagram and social media. I'm just like worrying and, and it doesn't affect people will say, well, I don't use Instagram, but the reality is, is that you're friends with five or 10 people that are using it all the time. And that's where they're getting all their information from. And that's what they're doing in their free time all the time. I'm constantly running into people because you took my class last week at Equinox. I've taught there for 15 years. I'm constantly running into people who are walking up the stairwell at Equinox looking at Instagram. If you're on a stairwell and you have to be looking at a platform like that, there's a, there's a problem. If you're in your car and you're scrolling through Instagram or texting someone, I mean, there's a problem. There's an actual problem. So when people say to me, oh, you just, you know, you're being a Luddite and I can talk extensively about the Luddites because I, I went back and I researched them and in the book you were talking about, I was writing a chapter on the Luddites who were not anti-technology. They just didn't want to lose their jobs. I'm not anti-technology. I use it for almost all of my career. I would say 85% of my income happens because of my laptop. I work for a decentralized global company. I'm very fortunate. I like that sort of work because when I left my last full-time job, I said I'll never just sit in an office all day, every day. It was just killing me. Right. But the ways that we use it and the times that we use it and the need and that that impulse of having to have it and look at it all the time, that is extremely neurochemically taxing. 
one of the main problems is that if you're trying to learn something and you're constantly being distracted by your technology, the dopamine goes into a place in your brain called the striatum. It's not going into, it's not going through the hippocampal circuits. So you're not actually remembering what you want to remember. You're actually creating more anxiety in your brain and your body. <laughs> but when you're constantly distracted and checking things all the time, you're getting that quick dopamine surge, but it's not in the right part of the brain. And I get that a lot of people aren't going to be as geeky as me about neuroscience and science and understanding the consequences of our actions. But the data is there. The data are there. So we need to look at them. Well, and I think that sort of goes in line with the article that you wrote about reading. I, I think, I mean, one thing I've learned firsthand just by having my podcast is that when you're actually in the room with somebody, talking to them for an hour and a half or an hour, you really feel their energy absorb you. And you feel the presence of sort of their their brain and, and their mind and what they're thinking. And I don't know if that's really happening as often anymore. In fact, I'm pretty sure it isn't. I also think about this concept of being bored. You know, this person that's walking up the stairs and looking at their phone and looking at Instagram, instead of thinking about, I don't know, an idea or maybe thinking of a loved one or thinking about their kids or whomever, they're more concerned about how many likes they're getting. And I do think there's an overall shallowness going on. And a lot of people think that I'm just complaining, which I sort of get annoyed by. I'm just merely just looking around and commenting on what I see every day. And I don't think it's going to stop. Do you think it's going to stop? Well, CNET published an article today about Instagram has been testing taking off likes. Yeah. And I knew about that, but this was a deeper dive article where they talk about the reasoning behind it was for that so that people for mental health issues. And I was really impressed by that. I'm not impressed by Facebook in a lot of ways, but the recognition of that and understanding that there's a serious problem happening is a good move. Well, the flip side, though, and I read another article where it actually has nothing to do with that. What they're trying to do is get rid of the influencer. And so the advertising dollars will, because people that get paid for likes are the influencers. So if they get rid of that, then advertisers will have to go directly to Instagram or Facebook and pay them. And that means the money will no longer go to the, uh, to the influencer. And so, I mean, I don't know. I think that's an interesting. That's probably true. And I wouldn't doubt it because these are complex issues. So I, I'm sure there, there's nothing. One thing I know, having worked for a startup for the past year and working on my own startup and paying a lot of attention to investment and how companies are structured and they're run is that companies of that size, if it's not going to affect their bottom line in a, in a positive way, they're not going to investigate it. Yeah. So that doesn't surprise me. I did appreciate, though, the fact that a, a publication like CNET took this deeper dive into mental health issues and interviewing people who were actually tested so, so the user can see the likes, right. but the public can't see them. And so it stops becoming a game of worrying. I mean, you can argue that people are still going to wonder how much feedback they're getting and whoever judges their self-worth off of that which is weird to me in the first place, but that that is the reality and that's the culture we live in. But if you're not having that public gratification, it could help out some people. I think that it's something worth exploring. When did you 
I mean, I want to backtrack. You write for the big think, which seems really appropriate because you, I clearly, similarly to me, I feel like you think a lot and you think about, you know, our culture's actions and decisions and where we're headed and you don't take things um, at face value. Because I do believe there's always the other story that's not being told. And I, that, to, that always fascinates me, or it always has. Um, so I am curious, how did you start working for the Big Think, writing for them? And then when did you get the sense that you liked to write about and think about some of the things that a lot of people don't talk about? To backtrack further, I started writing in 93. I started reading... When, as long as I can remember, I would just sit down and read entire books. So I went to Rutgers all four years there. I wrote for different school newspapers. Out of it, I worked as a full-time reporter for a number of years, and then I worked as a magazine editor. And when the music industry dried up, right. I wasn't going to make a, a living. It was, it was barely a living anyway, but as a music journalist, so that's when I moved more into fitness, which was my other, one of my other passions. And I've always worked in both worlds. And when I was teaching, I've been teaching at Equinox since 2004. And, and one of my students in New York uh, started The Big Thing, uh, okay. Victoria. She was a producer for Char- Charlie Rose for, I think, 15 years. And then she co-founded Big Think with a friend of hers. And, and so just having her and understanding I was a journalist, I just started writing for them, I guess, about seven years ago now. Right. So... You grew up on the East Coast. In Jersey, yeah. In Jersey, because you were just back there. Yeah. Um, I mean, create, obviously, you're a creative guy. You're really into health. But let's just talk about create, creativity, first of all. Was it a, sort of a creative household? Were you always really interested, into the, uh, interested in the arts? What was sort of going on when... I mean, because for me, I started playing piano like when I was three. I picked up the drums at 10. I mean, there was always sort of music around. Um, when what was sort of your household like and and how did you get into writing and doing music not a creative household a household of four people that didn't really interact much and only later on did we all sort of become close i mean there was closeness but the one thing that i bonded with my father on for very little was sports Hmm. and his influence because he's going to be 76 and he still is in wonderful shape and we had a gym in our basement and he besides his job in computers he voluntarily ran the company gym so i'd go there on weekends with him and baseball and basketball volleyball golf i started playing when i was 15 i'm going to play with him in a couple weeks when he's here so that the athletic aspect is what really led to fitness i would say there was, I grew up overweight, even though all the athletics, I was, I was chubby up until I grew eight inches in one year. So I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time, mm. I was bullied. So I spent a lot of time by myself. I always had friends around, but being an overweight kid with big ears, you get shit growing up. Yeah. And that really just led me to a space of spending a lot of time alone and reading. So I think the creativity just came from an early love of reading. By the time I got to college, I had fully grown into my skin at that point, And I was always good at sports. I never excelled in any of them. But I could pick up any sport and hold my own pretty much right away. Yeah. And that continued. But by the time I got to college, I went... I lived on what was at the time one of the most racially diverse campuses in the country, which was Livingston Campus at Rutgers. And... 
there was just a lot of ideas and a lot of different cultures merging around that time. And I was around a lot of creativity and I started doing first smoking marijuana and then doing psychedelics. And I attribute a lot of, a lot of growth happened during that time period that just continued until this day. Yeah. I there's a lot I want to ask you, but I can't help but think you sort of left off with the word psychedelics. So what's, how'd you end up in LA, but what, what, what are you talking about, about your life sort of changing perspective thanks to psychedelics? I guess that it ties into my upbringing. I went to college and I filed initially for an accounting major in business and pretty quickly decided that wasn't the path I wanted to go. Right. So I went into the English department and that also, for reasons of Rutgers, I just didn't appreciate the English department. There were a couple of classes I took that really turned me off to the study of literature, the way that they presented it. But around that time, I had a friend who gave me a copy of the Dhammapada and the Bhagavad Gita. I grew up with no religion whatsoever. Uh, my father is Russian Orthodox. My mother's Catholic, but neither of them practice. So I, I went to CCD for a few years and then it was done. I never really went to church. So I was given these, these texts, the Buddhist and Hindu texts, and it blew my mind. And I really felt akin, especially to Buddhism, which is if I have any sort of practice today, it's just following Buddhist ideas. And I ended up getting my degree in religion. And I think a big part of that was being introduced to first psilocybin and then LSD. And then I've experimented and continue to experiment with a lot of different psychedelics to this day. But that about a year of my life, I was doing it at least once a week, which is a little heavy, you know, yeah. but you're 19 and you're, you're just learning. And I was in a community that supported it. And I had some rough experiences, but nothing that ever detracted me from it. What they show you, I mean, first off, from a chemical level, it's just their serotonin in uh, the, the levels of serotonin that they bring into your brain. I mean, there's a reason that the FDA is now approving psychedelics like ketamine and MDMA for use in depression and anxiety. Uh, ketamine is the first FDA approved substance that's a psychedelic that is now being used to treat depression that's happening now Hmm. they're trying to get mdma on the scheduling for 2021 there's there's looking into dmt and psilocybin i lsd will see that might be down the line a bit but people are having a lot of success with microdosing and these substances i think are very important and the they were used ritually for so long and they were so important not lsd because i was kind of invented but right uh the rest of them were used in different contexts that were really important to communal bonding and to individual therapy for a long time and then you had first off with the you know hearst and the paper mills and then you had nixon in the 70s and the racial profiling and there, there are reasons that are political that psychedelics were given a bad rap but I think that they're extremely important to the experience of, of emotional and mental well-being. And I'm very happy that it's being explored. I do fear, like we're seeing what's happening in cannabis right now, it will be exploited. But I guess that comes with the territory if you live in a capitalist society. Yeah. So you got to kind of take that. Um, well, wait, what do you mean you think cannabis is being exploited? So (laughs) (laughs) you were hoping I wasn't going to ask that. No, but I I will gladly talk about that. Yeah, no, I'm curious. If you read the literature, every study that's been conducted about the efficacy of CBD, always, I have not seen a study 
that shows efficacy under under 400 milligrams, right? So okay, wait, because yeah. I just started taking CBD. Okay, um, so you don't see any evidence of it actually working under a certain amount when you put 10 milligrams into your coffee and charge nine dollars for it no okay they're they're the most bioavailable way for cbd to enter your bloodstream is through inhalation it's through smoking okay there is some evidence that it can work top um orally through drinking it there is no evidence published to date that it works topically interesting because i've been using it um and it possibly it's just a placebo effect. Placebo. And that is, <laughs> I've written numerous articles about that. I wish people could understand how important placebo is. It, it is amazing that we have this body that by the way that we think about something can change our oh, internal completely. chemistry. Yeah. And I don't see placebo as a bad thing, but people get so upset when you tell them that their product might be bullshit. Well, they just think that they're getting, you know, tricked and manipulated and they're just naive to think that this could work. And that's just embarrassing for a lot of people. Right. But they are. They are. When you're selling, when you're selling 200 milligram vial for 50 or $60, when the only evidence that exists that it doesn't become bioavailable until 400 milligrams, you're, you're taking part in, in a longstanding industry that has, that cycles. I mean, just wait two years or maybe even a year. There'll be another substance. They're going to keep coming. That's, that's what happens. The diets, it happens all the time. CBD just happens to be right now. And as a long time marijuana consumer and advocate, it's just, it's kind of gross. Yeah. It's kind of gross. I, I sold it in college. I sold it after college. I took a risk. I didn't take nearly as much of a risk as a lot of people being a tall white guy who was somewhat unassuming. I did. I only had People, I only sold to people that came through channels. I wasn't out hawking it to people I didn't know. Right. But I understand the political consequences. There are people in jail right now because of it, because they were profiled. And when you see an industry emerging where people who never had any skin in the game all of a sudden are making a lot of money off of it, it's, it's gross. It's problematic and yeah. indicative of how quickly we are to believe uh, whatever is told to us. That said... If people get benefit from cannabis, awesome. I'm never against that. If you're finding something in it that's helping you, wonderful. That's great. Yeah. But I come across and being in the yoga community for so long, having taught now for 15, 16 years and being practicing for 22, it's like I've been around the scene for a long time. And the gullibility that exists without any evidence is frustrating. Well, yeah, I mean, that's really um, what I talk about a lot, a lot is, is human beings' gullibility and our um, willingness to just believe just about anything. And I don't know where that comes from. And then the assumption that yoga teachers have the answers and they um, know the way and that their life is more fulfilled or spiritual than everybody else. I don't understand how naive we can, we can be sometimes. And maybe it's laziness that we don't want to sort of do the research ourselves or find the answers ourselves. And that we're just sort of willing to believe a pretty face. Um, I think it's two aspects and it's part of the paradox of our biology, which is, our brains are designed to conserve energy. So whatever is the easiest path that doesn't tax us, hmm. we will take that path. So that, that comes from a, a many hundreds of thousands of years of not having resources. 
but now we're more resource rich than at any point in history and we can see what we're doing to the planet and that's a whole other conversation right but having resources the ability to just open up a refrigerator and get food whenever you want we have to remember that's less than a century old that's how new it is now you and i we've had it our entire lives so we think that that's just the way it is but that is really new and so the ability that will still, even though, how is it put? I've heard it put, even though our software has been upgraded, the hardware has not. That, that's why I like to study neuroscience and evolutionary biology so much, because I want to see how did we get to this place and what can we tweak now to at least honor where we came from. Now, the other side of that, though, is that we are addicted to novelty. Now, again, prior times, that wasn't that bad of a thing because it wasn't like novelty was always around. You can argue that it was barely around. So so when you discovered a new fruit or that this plant made you trip, like whatever happened, it was new and it was really exciting. But now we have novelty at every turn, or what we think is novelty. We think that things are new, so we became addicted to that. So we have this paradox that we're working yeah. with as animals, and it's really hard to navigate when you're you're in a deluge constantly of information coming at you from every side. And I'm not saying this to just be devil's advocate, but I also think we don't know what's true or false anymore, and we sort of believe what we want to believe, and anybody can come across their opinion can sound like fact and i think that can be really confusing sometimes do you know what i'm saying i'm i'm going through a process now with my fitness career and what i'm doing with my body it's the first time i've ever consciously just started trying to put on weight right i'm so i'm what's considered an ectomorph i'm tall and i'm thin and i've been the same weight for 26 years now and within 10 pounds and so i'm doing this and i was on this site reading uh this guy's you know, what to do to, to put on weight in a sustainable way and eat the right foods. And I'm halfway through the article and I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking about all the things I could do. He says what he's saying. And I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is. <laughs> right. It was just up in the Google search. And then when I went to his about page and then I researched a bit, I'm like, okay, he has some standing. So it made me feel a little better. I want to add that I'm a very critical person. I was a critic in the arts for a decade with music and theater and, and different aspects of the arts. I'm also self-critical and I have to check myself on these things. I am I am socially progressive and so I see articles and I immediately get tipped. So I made this is how I come to terms with this paradox we're discussing. I don't ever post an article unless I read the full article. <laughs> right. I I've because I've done it before where I post something and I say something contradictory and then I get called out, rightfully so. Rightfully so. So I don't post articles unless I read them anymore. The second thing is, if it's not from a source that I know, I search and I look for a few other sources before I post anything or before I use it in my research or discuss it. Because that is where it's so quick. It's so easy just to hit share and to get caught up. If you believe something, you see something confirming, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. That's yeah. a problematic no, that's that's really it's an interesting point. It's like making me think of an article, and I, I may read an excerpt from it um, in a little bit. But it, it, you're right; we get caught up in the share without really getting caught up with where it's coming from. 
or, and, or who's saying it. And we think, and I, I would love to talk about this for a moment because it's very timely in my head. And it's actually one of the paradoxes I've been dealing with this past week. It's the feeling that you're doing something simply by hitting share. Right. And I bring that up because in the past week, Equinox has come under fire. Yeah, I read your article. About that. And being a longtime instructor, yeah, I was kind of very pissed off that the owner is holding a Trump fundraiser. But guess what? He's owned the company since 2006. And I knew in 2016 he supported Trump. That didn't come out then. It came out this sudden, uh, this time. And so you have these people, and I know the numbers, and it's pretty dramatic, the people who quit. Hmm. Uh, last week after this happened. But for 13 years, they didn't have a problem. And I get that it was brought to light and they had a problem, but they're not going to, it's not going to affect him. It's going to affect all the employees of the company. Yeah, but people don't think that deeply. They, they, well, they don't think about, and that's the, and I think everybody just gets caught up and they only think about themselves. And that's why, you know, they, it, they can't, they're thinking, they're not thinking. Really? That's they're reacting. They're the, reacting. Exactly. They're reacting. Yeah. I, I, one of a statement I thought of a long time ago, and I'm not saying I invented it, but it's always been in my head, is that humans are very reactive. We're not nearly proactive enough. And proactive means doing the research beforehand. And it, it's just like, it's just like not using your phone every time you get the impulse because you're aware that down the line that could seriously do you harm. That's being proactive. Right. That you're worried about what your mental health will be in decades. And there's no guarantee that any of us will be here in decades. But it's just thinking a little more sustainably because there's another comparison you've you've mentioned a few times where people are like, What are you thinking of? And this is but this is my thought process and how I view things. When you're in an Equinox bathroom, it's like romper room. Guys just leave their towels. They leave their band-aid, shaving, like just leave it out. They take their hangers. They leave it on the thing. They put their, they just work out. They take a spin class and then they dry their clothing on the benches where other people sit. It's not <laughs> hard to understand how so much environmental damage happens when you can look out on a micro scale and how people treat their immediate environment. Are we really going to care about the plastic in the ocean or what we're doing to rivers or the air? So it's that lack of awareness of our spatial surroundings. And that's what I think is one of the most dangerous aspects of technology. It doesn't give you good proprioception. You're not understanding how you're moving through space. And you see it all the time. People can't walk in a straight line because they're not paying attention. But even if they're not looking at their phone, they're wandering. Not in a good way either. Right. I want to ask you, this is something that I, I recorded a while ago on a podcast, but I was talking about the differences between the 90s and present day. In the 90s, I was in Los Angeles, Kurt Cobain had died, Rodney King beating had just happened, um, mudslides, the, the fires, earthquake in Northridge, very similar to what's going on right now, but... The difference is, is that when Kurt Cobain killed himself, you didn't have a cell phone to go to, to get distracted from it. You actually had to live in it. And there was really just like MTV and cable had just started. There was still just a few primary news sources. So you actually talked about it. Um, you experienced it and you lived with it. 
And I think one of the things that I'm thinking of as you're saying this is sort of people are wandering. I think the reason why also we're wandering is because it's about the next thing. It's not about really living in the moment. It's not really living in, oh my God, something terribly just something terrible just happened two weeks ago. Um, because even the news sources are doing it. They're just trying to find that next piece of information that's going to grab your attention. And I don't really know the answer. And, but I think it's all perpetuating this cycle that we're sort of, that I'm, that I really think about a lot. And I, it seems like you talk about it and think about it as well, where the vast majority of people around me, and it might be because we're a little older and we're really tech savvy, but we also grew up in a time when we didn't have technology. But similarly to you, I love technology and I use it all the time. But I guess my question is, is that do you feel as though we're all just sort of on this mad race to get people's attention and the news media is doing it? Um, our friends are doing it on Instagram. Uh, corporations are doing it. And, and that's sort of why we're not really able to make a change or absorb stuff right now? Well, I'll, I'll use an example. Use the 90s. I was in the World Trade Center about 45 minutes before the first plane hit. And I was on my morning commute. And I was in the gym when it actually happened. But I will never forget that day, but also the, the following weeks. And the being in New York City and walking around and just looking people in the eyes. Because that wasn't really the case before that. And for that those couple of months, there was a real feeling of like, whatever BS is happening, we got, we're just together. And that was really beautiful. I think technology at its best does that. I mean, you're seeing, you're, you see it when you have examples of, of Egypt and right now in Hong Kong. You see it where it can bring people together. Again, though, it usually has to be in a reactionary phase. I'm also in Hong Kong. I mean, this was one change to one law, which had bigger implications, but they've done 10 straight weeks, 10 straight weeks of protests that have kind of hit a peak right now at the airports. By the time this podcast airs, I bet half the listeners will be like, wait, what happened at Equinox? Yeah. The, the inability for Americans to sustain pressure is really problematic. And so... There are facets of technology that I, again, absolutely love, and it does bring people together. I have no problem with people at a concert taking a quick video or snapping a pic of the band and sharing it because that's a relationship with the music. When they're filming the entire concert, that's another story because they're never going to watch it, and it just becomes a distraction at that point. And I think we're constantly weighing against this knowing how to use it without being so engaged with it that we can't imagine life without it. I, I truly believe at some point someone's going to dial in something that takes down, uh, you know, not maybe not the internet, but the wireless systems, like whether it's a solar flare, which is a danger, or it's a, an attack. But I, the thing that I worry most is the ability to sustain pressure. And you, you do find it, but going back to Equinox, one thing, and this, this does speak to the larger point, I've talked to people who quit their membership, but they don't vote. Hmm. And if you can't see the disconnect in that, I, I, I can't help you at that point because you're only doing it about yourself. It's just about you feeling good at that point. But to take the time out and go research the candidates and, and to vote, 
especially in off-year elections, but even during a presidential election especially, to not take that civic engagement seriously, but be part of outrage culture where I'm just going to lash out. It, it's, it's really childish and shows a real ignorance of the complexity of thinking in general. I think I'm, I'm, I want to ask you one other question about social media and sort of uh, the internet, but then I want to ask you about yoga for sure. Mm -hmm. And the music. Um, Because that's the thing. I, I, I don't want to sound hopeless by talking about what we see around us, but um, I'm thinking about this Seth Godin post that I saw today, and I'm just, I'm going to read a little bit of it and then I want to get your reaction because I think it's, it's sort of surround, you know, Seth Godin. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love, love his work. Um, Social networks have amplified this desire At the same time, they simplified the execution. Now you can waste time and dignity instead of money. Who can tear you down? How much time can you waste? What it's worth to you to have more followers than the others. It's a lousy game because if you lose, you lose. And if you win, you also lose. The only way to do well is to refuse to play. So I was having dinner the other day with a good friend of mine. He's been using Instagram lately not just posting pretty pictures, but he's been sort of posing questions about um, the yoga community. And he asked me what I thought. And on the one hand, I thought, well, it's cool that you're using Instagram to do something instead of just pose, you know, or show pictures of your abs or your body. Um, But actually, you know, creating an environment where people are thinking about something. So on the one hand, I sort of applauded that. But then I started thinking, anything that is creating more dialogue or conversation on Instagram, I actually think is a bad thing. And so there is the conundrum for me. I want to use it to share that I have a podcast coming out or that I have like a yoga class that I'm teaching. But when people are doing surveys or those um, question and answer, anything that is creating more conversation on Instagram, I think is a bad thing. And do you think, and then this will eventually sort of spin towards yoga because, so let's just start, let's just end there for now. I have a writer's page on Facebook that I have a couple trolls on. I've had, I believe, some Russians on there because only when I posted about Trump did they come out. But there is a lot of people who engage me there. And I find it refreshing as a writer, that feedback and that ability to debate. And I don't respond to trolls I have in the past and I always learn not to. But but to actually debate with people and talk, I, I very much enjoy that process. Instagram, I was a music photographer along with journalists for years. So I shot hundreds of live shows. That was one of the things I did in the early 2000s. And I always treat Instagram for what for what it is. It's a photo sharing app. That's it. I'll post some videos and I use it mostly to look at cats. You're right. <laughs> and cat videos because we connect on that. Too. Yes. But for fitness videos, I love I love watching people's workouts because yeah. I can then take it and tweak it and 
I mean, when yeah. you took my class last week, some of that stuff I'd probably sourced from Instagram and then tweaked it in my own way. Right. And I love that. And then I actually what? used one thing that I, by taking your class, I actually used something and <laughs> used it in my class that I taught that night or the next day. I think my contention with it, and I don't, when I see something, when I see like 500 words after a photo, I, I don't read it. Hmm. I don't read it. And I get that it's become some people's diaries, but I don't understand why you have to post a photo of yourself in front of a sunset. Just post a sunset. Like if that's what you're talking about. My personal take is when people take spiritual quotes or these very meaningful quotes and they post a photo of themselves. That I can't think of anything more egotistical than that. Right. Really. Like if I'm on a cliff looking out, I want to show you what I'm seeing. I'm not going to show you me Right. Hogging up the scenery. <laughs> and I take pictures with friends or my wife or my cats. Like, that's fine. But but th- this branding, this constant, like, this is me, I think is also a serious mental health challenge that, again, if you, people get triggered by that. But if you're looking for your self-worth by posting photos of yourself every day, you have to wonder where that's coming from. Like, why aren't you sharing what you're seeing? Why do you need that validation of seeing yourself and then writing about? Because I guarantee, and this is just from years of experience in the in yoga and beyond in the so-called spiritual world and seeing people, is that most of the time if they're posting about something, it's because they're having a contradiction in themselves and they're not living that way. So it's usually the lack that they're posting to make it seem like they're doing that. Yeah. And that's an investigation for a therapist to work out. And I'm being totally serious and that's fine. But to put it on public and then to, you know, it's kind of like the, the vegans who get caught eating meat. Just be yourself. Like be honest with that and come to terms with it because you're probably a lot more sane and emotionally level yeah. that way. One result of people, specifically a lot of yoga teachers, just posting nothing but perfect pictures all the time with spiritual quotes from Rumi or whomever, I do think it's problematic. I I think it's creating so many falsehoods and so much confusion. And I did notice with you and your Instagram, and you're a yoga teacher, and I don't know if it's because you do a lot of things, but a lot of the yoga teachers that I know that do all these pretty pictures all the time. And the statistics show that more people are responding throughout to all these pretty pictures with feeling they're feeling depressed because ultimately they're comparing themselves. If you look at nothing but pretty pictures all the time, one natural reaction is to compare yourself to it. And that's what ultimately is happening. So all these yogis out there that think that they're presenting or providing more good in the world by showing these beautiful photos on top of some mountain with water falling all over their bodies. And there's clearly a perfect, you know, they're clearly filtered and they look beautiful. They think maybe, or maybe they don't think that they're creating a better world and they're quote unquote inspiring, which is actually not happening. 
So I'm curious, did you ever feel as though when Instagram came out and being a yoga teacher in, in here in LA, did you feel as though you needed to do that? No. Did that ever come across no, your head? No, no, no. And I've done photo shoots. I was a Lululemon ambassador for two stores. I did their first summit in Whistler. Like I, I've been, like I said, I've been involved for a while, but the only time I did photo shoots was when they asked or when I had something. And I'm fine, with, again, I'm fine with all of that. But I was watching, I went to, the other night, a friend from New York when I lives in Miami was visiting and... I met him at the Venice Pier and then we're going to go grab a beer. And I was a little early because I'm always early. So I I walked down by the water and (laughs) first off, there was a silent disco yoga class going on right next to the water. And it looked like they were getting ready for Burning Man. You know, (laughs) it's just fine. But I'm looking over at it and I'm like, you're wearing headphones next to the ocean. I was like, only in LA, only as that yeah. disconnect happened, there is the best soundtrack you can have. And you're doing this thing. And I was like, okay, I just walked by it. <laughs> right. And as I went under the pier, a woman was practicing yoga and she wasn't filming herself or anything. She was just doing her thing and she, maybe she liked that place. And that was totally fine. But then I saw her up against the, you know, the columns, the, the stone columns. Yeah. Try to do a handstand against the stone column as the waves were coming in and her hands were sinking into the (laughs) sand. She didn't have a handstand practice because she didn't come close and she was looking back behind her. And so I just imagined the other people that because I've seen a few people take photos down there of like handstands and stuff. And in my head, I'm like, I'm like, seriously, she could break something very easily right now. And she'd only practice. She only tried it. I was actually going to go and say something because of how dangerous it looked. Yeah. And then she stopped, which I was happy about, but I'm thinking that's a famous spot for yogis taking photos of themselves and posting spiritual quotes. And she probably saw that. And now she's trying to do this when she doesn't have the ability to do it. And would any of the yogis who posted that photo that she was influenced by, would they take responsibility when she broke something and had this injury? And the answer is obviously no. Right. But I, I never felt that rush to, to market or brand myself. Like I'm not a brand. Right. I, I disagree. I, I get your point about the human being. And, 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 and judging just from the digital world, I agree. But the funny thing is most of my relations, relations and relationships with people – so many of these things don't come up. Like mm. I'm just, I have very good friends and I have a lot of friends being in this world for so long. I communicate with a lot of people on a regular basis. And in my communications, when I'm with people, these things don't happen. But those are also possibly the circles I run in. And I am, again, definitely seeing it when I'm out and about in people's socially inept behaviors. Yeah. The inability to understand this, that they're sharing space with other people. So I see those problems happen then. But the question was about yoga and marketing. And, and no, I, it's part of the reason. I've been asked to teach at some other studios here and, and stuff. But I, I like Equinox. I, I never imagined teaching itself was never a career choice. It was always a passion. And I'm very lucky that for a long time I made a lot of my income from it and now I don't have to. And I'm very happy about that because I want it to just be a passion and enjoy moving with people Yeah. rather than having to 
brand myself. I've, I've known a couple of people who try to play catch up in their forties. They're like, I got to do this now because this is what the kids are doing. And I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah. No, you don't. But they go that route. What, how did you end up in LA and then how did you end up teaching yoga? Well, we'll start with yoga cause I was yeah. first. So okay. when I was in college, I was studying Eastern religions predominantly. Okay. And I was reading all of the texts then. And shortly after college, uh, I was doing martial arts in college. And again, I'd done athletics my whole life, different sports. And I found my way into a dance class called Alan Wayne work with this guy, Brendan, who is in Norway now, who I'm still in touch with. And it was a combination of yoga, ballet, and modern dance. So the first hour of the class was these insanely repetitive and just incredible warm-ups where you would do like shoulder circles for 15 minutes and you'd walk around the room. And, you know, it's very almost Kundalini-like in the repetition and the length of time. And then the second hour, he would give you concepts to play with. And for an hour, you did dance routines. And it was amazing. But he also became my first yoga teacher. He was the reason I was hired into Equinox. And mostly what happened, though, there was another teacher named Carrie Friedman, who I was taking my beginner's classes with when I started really getting into yoga. And I've broken my right leg three times from playing sports. And so I had a lot of imbalances in my body. And I was in chiropractic for many years. I had a subluxation in my hips. And her class and her patience and holding pigeon pose for a long time, the first few months, tears would just come out of my eyes. Hmm. So I knew there was a powerful, cathartic and emotionally cathartic and physical release that had to happen there. That was really important. So that's when I really became interested in yoga. Uh, Los Angeles, honestly, I was just... I was tired of New York. Right. Uh, I grew up in Jersey. I lived there for my first 30 six years, I guess. And I was just done with New York. I was done. The last winter I lived in New York, it snowed 44 inches. I taught all morning classes. So I'd have to be in, in the Equinox by 7am. And I lived in Brooklyn. Oh, so, so you were actually teaching at Equinox yeah, on the East Coast? Yeah, I started in 2004. So I eight years, eight years in New York. And then the last eight years I've been here. Okay. Yeah. And um, so I'd have to be there. And I taught like 20 classes a week then. That was the, near the end of my time in New York. That's how most of my income was coming. It was through Equinox. Yeah. And being, being at the subway at quarter to six in the morning in snow up to your waist, I was like, I don't have to live this way. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's how LA, LA happened. I visited here numerous times. So I just was ready to make that switch. Yeah. The, I remember meeting you and you were DJing Michelle's, uh, Michelle Goldstein's yoga class. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that the music is more important than the teacher. There's something about, to me, I think music, when done well, can just enhance any space, Uh, whether it's a wedding, whether it's, you know, even lunch, um, a yoga class. And I mean, I I love Neil Young's um, Down by the River. (laughs) And you played it. I've, I've never heard that song in a yoga class before. And, and I remember, you know, when you DJed Michelle's class, there was just a lot of thought into, and it wasn't just, you know, playing songs. I mean, you were actually really manipulating the music and there was some cool beats going on and it just was effortless. And it felt like one hour and 15 minute song, which I really appreciated. So I'm just curious about, your love of music and 
how you got into it and how you incorporate, because you clearly put a lot of thought into the music that you play in class, even if you're not DJing. So I'm just being a musician and a DJ myself. I'm just curious about how music sort of became such a huge part of your life. Going back to when I was young and spending a lot of time alone, a lot of that time alone, when I wasn't reading, I was listening to the radio or cassettes or vinyl or into CDs. I mean, music has always been a huge part of my life by high school concerts all the time. So music was just always there. Specifically, one of the biggest, I guess, career wins that I've had so far is that I created a national class for Equinox in 2014 called Flow Play. Yeah, I, I co-created that. it with my friend Philip, who's a longtime music producer. And it was the woman who hired me at Equinox, LaShawn Dale, who's now at 24-Hour Fitness. She took my class and she remembers this story. I don't remember meeting. I remember meeting her. I remember this happening, but she reminded me once later on. She came up to me after she taught and she goes, you have this whole movement thing going on, but then you have this whole music thing going on. She's like, which one's it going to be? And I said, hmm. it's both. They go together. And years later, she helped me launch a national program in Equinox called Flow Play. And for two years, I ran that program. And all that was was a training program where I traveled around the country and I taught about 150 yoga instructors the neurochemistry of music. How music affects your neurochemistry and movement patterns and why it's important to play certain music at certain points in class. Mm. And that grew out of my frustration of <laughs> yoga teachers just being clueless about oh, music. Yeah. Now, if you're a yoga teacher who doesn't use music and you can hold the space, awesome. Totally. Some of my best teachers were that. My my Iyengar teacher back in New York was like that. I yep. mean, amazing. But <laughs> I've been in numerous classes where they'll be playing like an alap, like the beginning of, of the Indian movement where it's all ambient. Or they'll be playing ambient music right. when you're flowing. Yeah. Now, you want beats at that point because beats increase your heart rate. They increase your threshold for pain. They oxygenate your lungs, right? So you're having all of these things. Now, yoga is not cardio, but the flow portion of a class will be the most cardio-esque part of a class. So you want the music to support that. I've been in classes where during Shavasana, (laughs) they're playing songs with beats. Totally. Shavasana is meant to be completely parasympathetic in your nervous system. If you're playing something with beats, you're doing the opposite of what the pose is intended to accomplish. So the ignorance of teachers, you know, and and, and people treat it like it just doesn't matter. It's an aside. It's not an aside. It's it's a huge part of class. Oh, and yeah. I, I and I, I really I, I chalk this up to part of the problem that I can that I think about when people call yoga spiritual practice and they're it's really spiritual. The physical is the other component. That's fine if you want to go that route, but understand that most people in America are there for stretching and working out. So accommodate that. Accommodate that and then use your teachings to deepen their practice that way. But don't come at it like that. It doesn't matter what they want. It's all about what you're going to give them because there's a profound ignorance in that. Yeah, And I see it all the time. Uh, I am a longtime atheist, so I have my issues with the whole spiritual aspect anyway, and we can go deep into that. But I, Well, this is a nine-hour podcast. <laughs> that might have enough time with my feelings on that. Yeah. But my point is, if you're, if you're teaching and you're using music, you have to understand and know what it's doing. 
And that's why uh, my, my weekly playlist on Spotify is public. Right. I have thousands of people that follow that playlist. I make, I make mixed sets for DJ for yoga classes on my SoundCloud and I have almost half a million listeners there. And I, a number of people write me and use them in their classes and I make them long enough for classes. And I specifically do that so that teachers, if you don't want to have to think about music, here you go. Hmm. Here you go. I did it for you. Just make sure that you're matching up the movement with the music at the right times, but it's done for you. Yeah. And be- because because I know it's again something that I take very seriously and and that's why I share it with people because I want I want their students to have a good experience. I want them to learn from it. Yeah, and I think a lot of teachers will think that it means they're less of a teacher that they have to use your music. But you know, some te- teachers aren't thinking like you are. Yeah, no, I would never think that. Yeah, no, but I do feel like they, I think there's an egocentric thing going on with teachers where they have to do everything and they have to put the playlist together and this, and they're clueless and they're playing like a white, I've heard a white snake song in a yoga (laughs) class before. And I'm sort of, and I'm like, and this was actually part of the reason why I became a teacher because I was going to some classes and people would tell me, oh, you have a great voice. You, you know, you go to yoga all the time. You should, you should teach. And I just sort of was like, whatever. Um, but I started going to classes where the music was terrible. And I don't care how great of a teacher you are, if you are playing White Snake at a specific part of the song or part of class, <laughs> it's just not working. Or Enya is being played. I'm thinking, come on, Enya is like 15 years ago. We can do better than Enya. Yeah. So I, I, I am a huge. <laughs> next <laughs> next week, uh, the 25th anniversary edition of Jeff Buckley's. Uh, oh. Grace is out, and there's all these tracks that they didn't. I am a Jeff Buckley fanatic. When I didn't really know his music until after he died, but I became friends with his bandmates, his ex girlfriend, his management. Like I, I am a huge Jeff Buckley fan, and I, I cannot wait till next week to hear this. If I hear Hallelujah in one more yoga class, <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm like, all right, he has a huge catalog. Yeah, go explore it. Stop with this one song. Like I get. <laughs> no, I understand. This uh, the second record. Um, I think sweetheart, my like drunks. There's I uh, so, sweetheart my drunk. Yeah. Sweetheart my drunk. There's yeah. a few songs on that record oh, that yeah. I play. Yeah. Here's prayer is beautiful. Yeah, yes, I'm huge. But um, one important point about this is understanding that your personal playlist when you're at home is not an appropriate yoga playlist. You have to you mm. have to stretch past. Two of my favorite forms of music are Kowali music from Pakistan and Iranian Persian classical music. Neither of them are appropriate for yoga. They just don't work. There's too much going on. There's too much complexity in the music to be played during a class. So I never play them during classes. I'll play them before class because it's beautiful. Right. But it's too distracting to people to hear so much complexity in music when you're trying to flow with them. Afrobeat, again, wonderful because the songs are 20 minutes. You can really go on a journey. But I have to really listen for the saxophone in that song because if there's too much soloing, it's going to take people out of their practice. Right. The beat itself is what's going to entrance people. But if there's too much going on on top, it's way distracting. I'm curious about a couple things. I just, I want to get into the yoga thing one more time. Or it kind of, I think in this weird sort of way, we all have to take a little bit of responsibility with how we post or what we post. And I talk a lot about aloe yoga sometimes. And you brought up this example of this woman down at the, uh, the pier at the pier. 
And I don't think, you know, and there was a teacher that was like holding a pose outside of a window. It's a mall. Um, And I do think people think that that's what they should be doing. I read somewhere where if you see something three times, that's enough for your brain to remember it and then to actually want to replay the action um, yourself. And I, I like when I see somebody like you posting just casual stuff of your cats um, or you just hanging out at home or you with your family back in New Jersey. But I do think if the problem is, quote unquote, you have 2,000 followers or 3,000. Aloe Yoga has maybe 5 or 10 million. So 10 million people are seeing these constant upside down pretty photos all the time. And 3,000 people are seeing cute, your cute cat photos. So I, don't, I think there's a certain responsibility that people should be taking, but they don't, really, they don't think that their posts are really having an influence. But I think they are, psychologically. And even maybe motivating people to try these ridiculous sort of things. Are you specific to Aloe with this? Because I have my issues with them too. Well, I mean, I don't know anybody that's doing it quite as extreme as they are. Well, that's it. Exactly. I think that they are definitely at the upper limit of like just posting. Uh, It's a side story, but related to this, uh, this woman had tried out uh, Yogi's Anonymous, which is a site I film at, Mm -hmm. uh, and she had tried Aloe. She tried them both the same month. And uh, Yogi's Anonymous is it's very grassroots. It's my friend Ali, who is one of the sweetest and best teachers I know because she walks the walk in every capacity. And there's like eight main teachers and we have guests and it's filmed in her garage and it used to be at the studio and then they closed down the studio. And it's it's a good quality, but it's not aloe level. Let's just say right. that, you know, you get the feeling that you're in someone's space. You're not they didn't pay for the room. And uh, she came she came to us and she said, I'm sticking with you guys because I feel like you're there with me. You're not teaching at me. Hmm. And I feel like the stuff that you guys teach, it's, some of it's hard, but I can do it. She's like, in the Aloe site, I can't do this stuff. It's like this level of... Um, you know, to take a to take a uh, an idea from Chris Ryan, who wrote Sex at Dawn, he's like, you know, guys watch porn and then they think they can do what those guys do, not understanding they're sexual Olympians, right? Right, and and so with the yoga, you have these people who can do these insane things, and they're they're not explaining it well. Uh, the, there are some teachers who are amazing who can explain well, but a lot don't. Right. And, and it's very, it's intimidating and the, you don't lead people to the to places that they need to, to get there. You don't strengthen the right muscles for them to be able to understand that, which is going to happen outside of the yoga studio to get to certain muscles. So, um, that, that's my big thing about the overproduction glossy quality. Uh, you know, I just read someone forwarded me that yoga journals publisher is now starting a CBD only magazine. It's again, it's like you're taking this tread and you're making it glossy and is acceptable for, let's be honest, predominantly white people right. to buy it. That's it. Yeah. And I, I am curious about the article that you wrote for Equinox and then I'll let you go. Were you scared to write that article? No, no, but I also have the, I also wrote it understanding that I am no longer financially dependent on them. Okay. If that were me a couple years ago, it would have been a lot harder, but I also understood that I was able to write it from that perspective. That said, I had seen a number of management, not a number, a couple of managers post on social media, their thoughts on it. 
which were not as journalistic, more raw, more emotional. I mean, really, really powerful what I read and I really appreciated it. But what I realized too was that if I can't criticize my employer, then, then I sh- there's a problem. There's a problem. Mm. If they were going to have a problem with that, then I shouldn't be working for them. And, I, and again, I know I'm not financially dependent and people are in different situations. So there is a sense of privilege in that sense there with that. I just had to, I had to write that. I had to because people really miss the fact that there are 15,000 employees at Equinox and the communities within Equinox are amazing. The reason that I still teach, even though I'm mostly working in tech and and media right now, is just because I love doing it. Again, it's not the check. That check buys my cat food. You know, it's 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 only a couple classes a week. There's nothing there, but it's I mean, there's something, but it's it's because I love walking into a room and having 20, 30 people and moving with them. There's nothing better than that to me. Yeah, one of my friends, you know, asked me if I you know, made my living full time from teaching yoga. And I said, no, I teach maybe like four or five classes a week. And she said, actually, that's good because you don't want to try to make your living doing being a yoga teacher. Oh, it's when I taught 20 classes a week, my practice was shit. Yeah, it was, it wasn't, there was nothing there uh, because you're just teaching three, four classes a day. And it's really hard to be creative. It's really hard to be supportive when you, on Tuesdays, I taught four classes and my last one was at pure yoga at like 7 PM or something. So by the time I got there, I yeah. really love them. But what, what, if you've been up since five thirty and you've been on subways all day and you're, you know, what can you give? It's really challenging. So I did it out of necessity for a while and I'm glad I don't have to anymore. Yeah. And I never know where life is. There might be a time where I do have to go back into that, but it, it is hard to do when you're doing it all the time. I'm really curious, and, and then this will be it. No, I've just, you're really in good shape uh, physically. And it's just, I can't believe that you were really overweight. Well, that was genetically half of my family is overweight and the other half is not. And um, I grew eight inches in one year. Yeah. Mean, that's really it. So that I, was up until, up until high school, I was overweight. Yeah. Like, and not just a little bit, like I was definitely had some girth but then imagine growing in eight inches but being the exact same weight and that's what happened to me and then and then i grew another four inches after that so that's really the that was i attribute to genetics but also i mean i ate terribly when i was young yeah um and then are you vegetarian uh that's a whole other story i was vegetarian for 20 years vegan for two of those years and about four years ago i was listening to a few different podcasts where the guys on it were talking about the exact same problems that I was having with gastrointestinal issues that were chronic. And they talked about how the paleo diet completely changed them. So I said, okay, I'm like, I've been dealing with these problems for a long time. Let me try it. Yeah. And I went paleo and all of the problems cleared up. And then a bunch that I didn't expect to clear up. I no longer, (laughs) when I stopped being a vegetarian, I had hundreds of panic attacks two that put me in the hospital one that caused me to black out in a restaurant and pass out on some poor woman wow i stopped i haven't had a panic attack Wait, since why, i started eating. why why like how are you attributing the panic attacks to being a vegetarian or, i or maybe I, I i am making a correlation not a causation when okay. i stopped oh but, but i will i will say i don't attribute it purely to being vegetarian i attribute it to too many carbs in my diet without enough patent protein 
Carbs turn into sugars in your body. Sugar keeps your body in a constant state of inflammation. Inflammation is a marker of panic because you're you're in sympathetic nervous system more often than not. Okay. So when I went to more fat and protein in my diet and took out the carbs, then that's when they stopped. So I think that was an important aspect of it. So I'm not against a vegetarian or even a vegan diet if done well, but I think it's really hard to do well. But as a and, yoga teacher, do you feel as though you had to be a vegetarian? No, they came about, uh, honestly, the, the food at the Rutgers dining halls is what made me become a vegetarian. But okay. I was also studying Eastern philosophies at the time, like I said, and there was a heavy emphasis on the modern incarnations of this because, well, for, at least for veganism, not vegetarianism, because, you know, there's obviously half of India is vegetarian, at least right. it's a strong part of the culture in the North. Yes, in the past I have. I have towed the line of the yamas and the niyamas, and I translated it as being a vegetarian, and then I changed. Yeah, I changed, and I feel much better for it. I feel way better in my body. I feel stronger. I'm stronger than I've ever been. Uh, I don't have those chronic issues that were plaguing me for a long time, so I have to go with what works, not with what I think should work. Yeah, which is a problem with philosophy. If you, you know, that's where the that's where the contradictions come in, and the and the uh, hypocrisy can come in. If you think what should work, but you're not actually living that, there's a problem. I was thinking, what advice would you give somebody about handling technology or handling Instagram? And I, you know, you're a mature adult, but I do feel as though people get caught up and get triggered and spend more time in the artificial world than the real world. And if you're not on Instagram, you're thinking about Instagram or you're thinking about Facebook and that ends up consuming people's lives. And I know you, you wrote about it with that article about the importance of reading because it, it does, it, it takes you to a new world. It slows you down it causes the brain to function at a, at a different level than probably most any other activity. Um, so I, I think those kinds of day-to-day experiences just aren't happening like they used to. So what can you tell people out there that will remind them how important it is to stay off the phone, read, have human-to-human contact, have face-to-face conversations... From your experience, mm-hmm. you're, it feels like you have a lot of expert information about it. So how can you get people to change their life? Well, I'll, I'll go more anecdotally than expert because I think it's relevant here. First off with reading, I've basically read a book a week since I was 18. Uh, it is a discipline. And when my friends realize that or they hear about my reading, when they, when they see me buy a book and then I'm done with it, they're like, because it's a discipline. I have to carve out an hour a day minimum to read. That's yeah. it. That's part. It's just like getting to the gym. There's an hour minimum a day, six days a week. And then with reading, there's an hour a day. Like it's just part of my life and you have to devote the time to it. And then it becomes, if you don't get it, you're like, oh, I feel bad. Yeah. So there's that aspect. In terms of the phone, it's very, it's very simple to, if you want to know if you're addicted or not, the next time you go to reach for your phone to check something, don't. And then see if you start to shake a little. See if your body gets a little warmer. You'll very quickly know if you have an addiction. If that happens where you get like anxious, that's an addiction. Yeah. So you have to be honest with that. Very simple advice. And it's, it's, again, talk about social proprioception, which is, again, how you move through space around other people. It's 
something I think about a lot. The next time you're paying for something, look at the cashier in the eye and Hmm. say, how you doing or something. I've talked to so many cashiers who the person before me doesn't acknowledge their existence. And I'll say, how does that make you feel? And their answer is always the same. It makes me feel shitty. Yeah. They don't even acknowledge that I'm here. I'm just something that's in their way of getting their stuff and leaving. And it's terrible. It's terrible. Again, going back to Equinox, like leave Equinox is set up in such a way that when you leave a locker room, there's a towel drop at the entrance of everyone. So that when you leave, there's usually two to three towel drops, but there's always one so that you have to pass it. And people just leave it where they go. Not recognizing that someone has to clean up your stuff. Yeah. Like, and I've heard the argument. I've actually heard this argument when I lived in New York, when I used to call people out for clipping their nails on the subway and wiping it onto the ground. <laughs> and people would yell at me when I called them out. And yeah. they would say, people are paid to do that. And I'm to clean up after me. Yeah. And I'm like, and my answer is always like, so you want to add that to their plate? Your fingernails, your, your sweaty towels. You want to add that to someone's plate knowingly. So just recognize people around you. I mean, it's so simple. It seems so simple. Yeah. But I constantly see it. Just, we don't recognize one another. And I think that's, that's a real danger. And I think we all want to be celebrities in this weird sort of way. Somehow these, these platforms and sort of the day-to-day world that we live in now, it just makes it makes people think about themselves all the time and it creates this sort of this world in people's heads where they, they think they're a a movie star or they can just sort of do whatever they want. And people uh, don't think about other people's feelings. And just in your example, Uh, Maddie who founded yoga works, who died recently. And I, I haven't followed up on that story. I didn't know her. I, never studied with her or anything, but I always saw this one quote floating around from some of her senior teachers, which is, do you want to be famous or do you want to be good Hmm. in terms of being an instructor? But you can extrapolate from that. And that I think about that. I keep that in my mind about that because when I leave here and I go over to Westwood to teach, I'm going to have 20, 25 people in that room and I want to be a good teacher to them. I don't want to, you know, I, I want to be there for them and I want to enjoy the experience I have with them. Yeah. And that's, that's how I feel about celebrity. It's just, it's irrelevant. So you can be found, you're teaching at Equinox in Westwood. You also teach at Equinox in Culver City. And Marina. Marina's and Marina my home club. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I'm there three days a week. And then you're um, online at DerekBarris.com. Yes. And you have, like, you've written, written like eight or nine books, right? Yes. And they can all be found on Amazon. Yes. Which book, if you were to suggest one book for somebody to go to that you think they should hit up first... Would you suggest? Uh, from, from, I would actually pick my first and my last. My first book was Global Beat Fusion, The History of the Future of Music, which was the result of four years of being a world music journalist. And it was a lot of my interviews with and, and explorations and traveling around world music artists. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still very happy with that book to this day. And my last book, Whole Motion, which is training, uh, training your brain and body for optimal health, which is just why it's as important to train your brain as it is your body. And if you're in the gym on a, on a bike, but you're looking at your phone, you're not actually training your body or your right. brain. Um, you, you, I mean, focus happens everywhere. It's not just, I can, I can move my legs, but I can be distracted by this. Like, so the, so the, it's sort of a, a course where you ask me about like real practicable lessons of what you can do. That book is that. Yeah. I could, I could talk to you about so many freaking things. It's crazy. 
Um, but I appreciate you taking the time, the downward facing spiritual spiral, just talking about everything. It's just been really cool to listen to you talk. I feel um, just sitting here talking to you, it makes me think and it makes me think about my own life and things that I could do differently. And it's not that I'm doing things wrong, but it's really important to get hear other people's perspective. Yeah. And sort of how you can implement it into your own life. You know, you pick and choose. And I, I think, um, yeah, it's just, it, was, it means a lot that you took the time to talk because I know you got a lot going on. And it's, I just appreciate you coming here and talking. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, you got it. All right. Thank you.